Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Today, picking up in verse 15. I say picking up, although we were not in Genesis 2 uh, the last time I was with you. It's good to be back, by the way. Uh, good to be back uh, home with our home church. I trust that Stephen Atkinson opened the word faithfully last week, as he always does. But today we are uh, returning to our studies this summer through the issues of marriage and sexuality as we find them in the scriptures. Uh, this is a topic. Uh, as I get into it, it feels uh, more like a chasm that opens up beneath you as you fall. Uh, there is no bottom, it seems. And the more text I look at, uh, it seems the more that I, I want to touch on. My plan right now is that this whole series, we've had two sermons already, that the whole series will be eight sermons. Uh, and that today I will be preaching the first of two sermons directly relating to the issue of marriage. Today, from Genesis chapter 2, we're going to look at God's purpose for marriage. Next week, Lord willing, uh, from uh, Ephesians chapter 5, we'll see God's plan for marriage. That means that if we get to the end of Genesis today and you say, he hasn't said everything he ought to have said about marriage, then you are right. Uh, I can't say everything that needs to be said. Hopefully, I'll say what this scripture says, but next week we will come back as well uh, to look at the way that the Lord has ordered marriage. But today, specifically looking at what marriage is meant for, God's purpose in marriage, from Genesis chapter 2, verses 15, to the end of the chapter in verse 25. Before we read this text together, let's uh, go again together in a word of prayer and seek God's blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you again that you are the one who shines light into the darkness through Jesus Christ. You also are the one who gives your word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. For all those, whether married or not, in our congregation, we pray that we would see your intention in giving marriage to the world and giving it to your people that we might know you more. We pray, Father, that we would come away loving you uh, in a way that, that we had not anticipated, perhaps, be, before we started. Help us, O oh Lord, to have hearts that are drawn to you as you open your word to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in Genesis chapter 2, beginning to read in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So out of the ground that the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones 
and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study together today. Uh, I assure you that I don't normally go looking for secular relationship advice. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, early on Wednesday morning, the all-knowing algorithm that controls my news feed uh, thought that I might like to catch up on the latest from dear old Abby. Uh, Dear Abby, so it always begins, dear Abby, 18 years ago, I married a man so he could get health insurance and have back surgery. It was supposed to be short-lived. He fell in love with me and wouldn't leave. Over the years, he has made life terrible. Stage four tongue cancer left him unable to work. Then he started drinking and got a DUI. My husband is a complete slob, capital S-L-O-B. He has a severe sleep disorder he refuses to address. Most days he drinks all night and sleeps until two or three in the afternoon. I finally moved out, but now he's pestering me about when I will be back. What can I do? Signed, turned the page in Arizona. Uh, Call me hard-hearted. But when I read that scenario, my very first thought was, here is someone who has no earthly idea what marriage is meant for, in the first place, did you catch it in that first line? I married a man so he could have back surgery. Call it a marriage of convenience. If you like, call it gaming the system. However you slice it, it's marriage for something other than marriage itself. And I thought, here is someone who has no idea what marriage is for. And then I read the advice. Dear turned, Unless you want more of the same, do not go back. You have done enough of the heavy lifting. It's now time to concentrate on what is good for you and what will make you happy. Because you no longer want to live with this person, consult an attorney about how to extricate yourself from a dysfunctional relationship which should have ended as soon as he healed from the back surgery. That made it much more clear. Here is not one, but two people who have no idea what marriage is meant for. One says that marriage is about health insurance. The other says that it's, well, for happiness. The Bible says something entirely different. You're aware that among uh, conservatively-minded biblical Christians, there is uh, no end, it seems, to the struggle with our culture's push to redefine marriage with good uh, purpose, I think. In 2005, same-sex civil unions were illegal in every state in the country, and just 10 years later, with a single SCOTUS decision, uh, they became the law of the land. Three years ago, in the summer of 2020, Somerville, Massachusetts, became the first local municipality to legally recognize, quote, polyamorous and other multiple adult relationships. It is moving at a breakneck speed, this 
redefinition of marriage. It is the active overthrow and undoing of what has been for millennia the foundational building block of human civilization. And I don't say that as a political talking point, I assure you. Yet if you trace down these redefinitions far enough, you will find a disagreement. Not just with what God says marriage is, but much more what God says marriage is meant for. Truth is, you can get all of the integers and all of the exponents in the right place and still come up with the wrong answer. We all know the biblical formula, I hope. One man plus one woman equals one marriage. It's simple addition. It's just, math just mathematics. And if you mess with that formula, you will never arrive at a marriage. Call it what anyone may like to, except that there's more to it than that. Marriage is about more than just basic addition. Marriage is about more than just the blissful union of one man and one woman living happily ever after. Marriage is meant for more than love. It's meant for more than convenience. Marriage is more than just shared interests. It's not just deductions on your income tax. Marriage is meant for more than having someone to come home to or having someone to share your bed with. Marriage is far more than any of those things because marriage, as God originally gave it, is a way to display His divine glory in creation. Marriage is meant to be a window, a looking glass through which we can see God's commitment to his people, or perhaps a picture, if you prefer, in which his covenant love is on full display. Marriage, for the believer, is one of those ways that the Christian can show the watching world that God is God and God is good. It is a way to display the glory of God. That is the Lord's original purpose. And we can see that purpose in seeing from this text three things that God gave to the first man that he created. The first thing that God gave to man was a gracious commandment. God gave him a gracious commandment. That's the language at the center of verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. In the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There are many firsts in the book of Genesis. This is the first command. It's the first time that word shows up, and it comes to Adam in terms of something that he is allowed to do and something he is not allowed to do. Or we might say that this first gracious command comes with blessings, but it also comes with boundaries. It was not a stingy command. It was not a one-sided killjoy sort of command that the Lord heaped onto his creation like some wearisome burden. Adam, you can eat whatever you want, the Lord was telling him. Everything that is good for you is at your disposal. You may eat freely. You can have it all. Incredible, abundant, lavish provision. Only one tree has been denied to you. You may surely eat of every tree, but not from the tree that leads to death. This is how God works. 
He does not give rules to his people arbitrarily. He does not bind us with commandments just to watch us squirm under his restrictions. When the Lord God gives commandments, it is always for our good. And very often, like this commandment, his commandments are double-sided. That is, they often show us what is good, what we ought to pursue, and they show us what leads to death, what is destructive, those things we ought to escape and flee from. Take an example. The Lord, on the one hand, says, you shall have no other gods before me. On the other hand, the greatest commandment. He tells us, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. That's two sides there of the same commandment. The Lord knows that idolatry leads to death. He also knows that to know him is life eternal. And so he says, one thing you must flee, then another thing you must pursue. You must flee from idolatry. You must put your hopes in the Lord God only. This is what 1 John chapter 5, verse 3 tells us. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. No, they're not. God's commandments are not burdensome. God's commandments are gracious. God's commandments are for our good. God gives his people boundaries, but those boundaries help us to enjoy the blessings that he has for us. Let's think about about that with a different word pair, perhaps. God, God gives us blessings with boundaries, or we might say that the Lord calls us to fruitfulness, but he also calls us to faithfulness. Notice that twofold charge God gave Adam in verse 15. The Lord God put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. To work it and to keep it. To cultivate it, we might say, and to protect it. The Lord put Adam in this incredible new paradise. And he called him to get to work, making that paradise even more productive and and abundant than it already was. But he had to work the ground faithfully. He had to protect the garden from anything that might threaten it. He was to cultivate his crops, not like a landowner, but like a sharecropper. Realizing that he was just a steward, that somebody else was in ultimate control, and he had to be faithful to the one who was over him. God's gracious commandment. He gives us uh, faithfulness, a command to faithfulness, and within that faithfulness, he promises fruitfulness. He gives blessing within God-ordained boundaries. Perhaps this seems like a strange place to begin thinking about marriage. In fact, I bet that the last time that you were at a wedding ceremony uh, and the pastor opened Genesis chapter 2 to read this wonderful text in the context of marriage, he probably picked up in verse 18. It's okay. You You have to start somewhere. You can't always go all the way back to the beginning. Verse 18 is a wonderful place to start thinking about marriage. But what we see when we pick up the story in verse 15 is that marriage comes to us in a larger context. The Bible tells us that God created all things out of nothing. The Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Marriage is also God's creation, but there's a sense in which it doesn't come out of nothing. God starts with pre-existing material, if you will. 
God begins with a larger purpose that he has for humanity. And this larger purpose we began to see the last time we were together in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. It continues. So God created man, male and female, it says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. There's that word repeated. It's God's larger purpose. To make man the crown of creation. To make men and women together the very image of his righteous rule in the world that he has created. God's purpose for humanity was to give to them dominion over every living thing in every available space. So Genesis 1 talks about the birds in the heavens, the fish in the sea, and the beasts on the earth. Everywhere man is to have dominion. He's calling them not just to expand like the other blind instinctual creatures, he's calling them to increase intentionally so, to increase not just their number, but to increase his kingdom, to fill the whole earth with the knowledge of the glory of God to his praise and honor. But in order to do that, they will have to multiply. In order to be faithful to God's purpose, they will have to be fruitful. Many commentators have called Genesis chapter 2 something like a zoom lens on Genesis chapter 1. That's a good way to think about it. So whereas in Genesis chapter 1, we saw male and female created together, almost simultaneously, if you want to read it that way. In Genesis chapter 2, we find man created first and woman created almost in response. Genesis 2 is, is not a contradiction. It's not a revision. It's an expansion of the story. It's zooming in on the plot line so that we can have a greater understanding of God's original purpose for the people that he was making. So the context comes to us right before marriage is given. Work the ground and keep it, he says. Enjoy and abstain. Eat from all the trees, but not that one. Multiply and fill the earth and have dominion, but fill the earth in order to subdue it. And this is the gracious commandment that prepares God's glory to shine forth in marriage. I want to take a little sidestep here. We're going to come back to the text in just a moment. But, but a word to those who are married and, and those who are not. We ought to mention that when we talk about fruitfulness in marriage particularly, one of the ways that we measure that is with children. Let's not avoid the obvious. That is what Scripture tells us. It tells us that children are a heritage from the Lord, and blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. Let's not downplay the blessings that Scripture actually tells us to call blessings, but we also need to know not every married couple will have a quiver full of children. Not every married couple needs to try to have as many children as physically possible. And we all know, of course, that some, perhaps many Christian couples in God's providence, will never be able to have any children. And the Lord is sovereign over these things. Let's say what Scripture says. Children are a heritage from the Lord. He chooses when and if our children 
are born. And in our childbearing or in our childlessness, we have to learn to trust that he is the one who will do what is best for his people. It means that all of God's people, married or not married, need to learn the discipline of waiting faithfully for him. We need to learn that while we wait for him, we can apply ourselves to the other fruitfulnesses that are pleasing in his sight. Truth is, whether you have biological children or not, the Lord still calls you to multiply. He still calls you as a believer to make disciples. He still calls you as a believer to adorn the profession of your faith with good works. He still calls you to be filled to overflowing with the fruit of his spirit. So yes, one way that we measure faithfulness and fruitfulness, excuse me, one way we measure fruitfulness in marriage is with children. But if you don't have children, that doesn't mean that you're unfruitful. It just means that you have to be faithful where the Lord has called you. Now to return to our text, we need to see here in this larger context I think that we will never really understand what marriage is meant for until we understand marriage in terms of this gracious commandment that God gives us. Last time we were together, we focused on the fact that God made man male and female. He did that on purpose. They were different by design, we said. He made them different so that he might bring them together. He made them separate so that he might give them to one another. He made them each unable on their own to complete this gracious command to fill and steward the world that he's laid on humanity. And it means that amidst all of these redefinitions of marriage flying around in our wider culture, we also need to watch for the temptation to diminish marriage, to make it less than what God says it actually ought to be. There's the ever-present effort to define marriage according to romantic love. Uh, There's the impulse to make it about happiness, fulfillment. There is uh, the impulse to make it about mutual companionship, sexual enjoyment. The list goes on. Anything you can think of, really. Health insurance, for instance. And when marriage works in the right uh, right direction, there's going to be a lot of those things, love and fulfillment and happiness. It's true that God has blessings in store for his people when we pursue marriage as he has defined it. But as good as any of those things are, they are not the purpose for which God gave marriage to humanity. How do we know that? Because he gave us first a gracious commandment. He gave second a suitable helper. That's our second point. God gave the man a suitable helper. Uh, Verse 18 is one of those uh, parts of this passage that sticks in people's mind when we think about what does the Bible have to teach about marriage. And many a good marriage sermon has uh, zeroed in on this verse. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It grabs us because it seems out of place, doesn't it? How could it be so in this wonderful paradise that the Lord has just made? The Lord creates everything and and fish and birds and beasts and, and flowering trees and plants to eat. And he creates everything and he says it's all very good. And none of it's been touched by sin yet. So how could there be something that is not good in the world that God has created? 
while you ponder that, I want you to notice the first person to recognize the not goodness of Adam's situation. It is not Adam. <laughs> right? It is the Lord himself. It is God who points out that this is not good. Let's not get the wrong impression. The text says that the Lord said it is not good for the man to be alone. The text does not say that Adam was feeling lonely. This is not a statement about his mental health. Right? Kent Hughes says that for all we know, Adam didn't even recognize that he was alone. For all we know, he was perfectly, he was sinlessly content with exactly what the Lord had provided for him in that garden. It's not Adam who notices. Instead, it's the Lord who declares that this situation is deficient. It's the Creator who acknowledges that there's still something that doesn't fit his good plan. Remember how chapter 2 is a zoom lens. That means that chronologically, this passage we're reading today fits somewhere between those two little words, man and woman, male and female, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Male and female, he created them. That and, that's our whole passage today. That means when it says that it's not good for man to be alone, it doesn't mean that God has made a mistake. It simply means he's not done yet. Nancy Guthrie says that Eden was unspoiled, but it was also unfinished. God calls it not good. Because he has not yet made humanity what it was intended to be from the beginning. But then the rest of verse 18 lets us in on that secret that Adam doesn't learn until down in verse 22. God himself, he says, will finish his own masterpiece. I will make him a helper fit for him, he says. That's a weighty statement. You notice that when the Lord is saying what he will do, God is, by his solution, diagnosing the real problem that Adam is in. Let's say you go to your doctor next week. And you've got all sorts of nasty symptoms that indicate some sort of infection, and you don't have any idea what it is. But if your doctor is worth her copay, she will run all the tests. She will send out the cultures. Then when the results come back, she may prescribe you something to deal with it. And it may be an antibacterial. It may be an antiviral. Maybe an antifungal. Maybe an antiparasitic if you're unlucky. But the medicine that you get tells you an awful lot about the sickness that you have, doesn't it? And when the Lord sees Adam in the garden, he sees his problem. He says, I know just what you need. I have just the thing for you, Adam. He is diagnosing the problem that Adam has. And the Lord says, no, 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 you, you don't need a psychiatrist, Adam. You don't need a mother. You don't need a CFO. You don't need a companion. You don't need a friend. You don't need a lover. You don't need a pet or a secretary or a slave or a hookup. You need a helper. That word is freighted with meaning in the Old Testament. In the vast majority of the places where it shows up in the Old Testament, it actually speaks of the indispensable help that God himself gives to his people. So in Exodus chapter 18, verse 4, we learn that Moses named one of his sons Eliezer. That's the word, Azer, a helper. And Eliezer means God is my helper. 
the text goes on to tell us that he chose that name because he said, the God of my father was my help, and he delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Do you remember Pharaoh before he went down to Egypt? Do you remember what he said in Exodus chapter 3? Who am I that I should go and say to Pharaoh? Who am I that I should go and lead the sons of Israel out of Egypt? How can I do that? But now in chapter 18, he says, but the Lord was my easer, my helper, the indispensable one without whom I would never be able to accomplish what I had been sent to accomplish in the first place. It helps us to understand that a helper in the Bible is not some add-on accessory. Not just a little pat on the shoulder, a bit of encouragement. You can do it, Adam. There you go. It's true. In this text, Adam has priority in creation. He has priority in the story of Genesis. It's true that as the federal head representing humanity, the command in verse 17 comes to Adam in the singular. You, Adam, you may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's true that he has priority. And it's true that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, man was not created for woman, but woman for man. But when Paul says that, he doesn't mean that she was created for him in the sense that she was to be a possession, like an appliance or a trophy. He means she was created for him in order to complete him, to help him accomplish, as God does for his people, to help him accomplish what neither one of them could do on their own. She was his indispensable helper. And she is perfectly suited to him. The text says, fit for him. If you're reading the King James, it's not one word. Help meet is not a word. A help, that is, meet for him, fit for him, corresponding to him is the, is the meaning, a corresponding opposite. Not just physically, but also socially, emotionally, spiritually his complement. God says, that is what I'm going to give to Adam to fill out this purpose that I have for humanity to fill and to subdue the earth, to extend my glory and my reign over all the earth. That's what I'm going to give Adam. And that's the point at which the history takes a pretty strange turn in verse 19. Immediately after this declared intention, God says he's going to give man a helper. And then we have this parade of animals that comes to Adam for him to name them. The, the fish are left out. They'd suffocate if God brought them. But he brings the birds. He brings the beasts. And as we read that, the Lord has just primed the pump. We're going to meet this helper and then wait a minute. And you start to wonder, when are we going to get to the good part? There's a wedding to get to. What are we doing naming all of these animals, oxen and lemurs and emus and tapirs? When are we going to meet this woman who's so important to God's plan? If when you read that, you find yourself getting wrapped up in the anticipation, I think that's exactly where you ought to be. I think that's exactly where God wanted Adam to be. We don't know whether Adam knew in verse 18 that he was alone, but by the end of verse 20, he's starting to figure it out, isn't he? 
At the end of verse 20, he has seen all there is to see. The Lord brings this constant stream of, of other living creatures before him. And it tells us very clearly, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. It's not until he's ready, in a sense. Not until he's waiting that the Lord makes good on his promise. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs. He made it into a woman. He brought her to the man. Maybe it's at this point in the story that you realize just how much of this passage about marriage is really a passage about God. Did you notice how he is the prime mover in the whole thing? Did you see how many active verbs are attributed to him while everybody else is simply acted upon in this situation? The Lord God, it says, took the man, put him in the garden. The Lord God commanded the man. The Lord God declared that Adam's loneliness was not good. The Lord God promised to create a helper. The Lord made the animals and brought them before him. The Lord God did the same thing with the woman that he had made while Adam slept like a baby. And on it goes through the whole passage. The Lord is at the center of the Bible story concerning marriage. That is why wherever marriage is maintained and supported, rightly in creation, there the glory of God cannot help but shine forth. Marriage can't help but reveal the glory of our God because marriage is a gift that was given by Him. It is not a social construct. It is not a human invention. It is not some meaningless piece of paper filed away in a courthouse somewhere that you will never visit again unless you get in trouble. Marriage is a gift from God to his creation, meant to show us his glory. And Adam got it, I think. Because when the Lord brings uh, this woman to him, he breaks out for the first time in praise and in poetry. These are the first recorded words we have from the first man ever created. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. She is his perfect complement, he found. His corresponding opposite. And no offense to any of the wives in the room, but since that day, there has never been another bride on her wedding day as radiant as this woman was when her heavenly father, as it were, walked her down the aisle and presented her to her husband. Never mind the fact that we have no idea what she looked like. It's curious, isn't it? The bride on her wedding day, and we don't even get a picture. The Bible tells us nothing about what she looked like. They don't tell us if she was tall or short. We don't know if she was blonde or, or brown-haired. We don't know if she was fair-skinned or dark-eyed. We don't know if she had full lips or long, healthy cuticles. Isn't it interesting, we should think, for a book like the Bible that has been so consistently maligned as sexist and misogynistic and oppressively patriarchal. Isn't it interesting that the Bible doesn't give us a single description of the woman that ticks any of the boxes that capture the erotic imaginations of sinful men? 
Not a one. We aren't told what she looks like. We aren't told what she can cook. We aren't told what she's like in private. Because her value doesn't lie in those things. Her value lies in being the perfect complement to the man that God has created in order to fulfill this promise command that he's given to humanity. And it means despite all the hype that you may have heard, the Bible is not anti-woman. The Bible is pro-woman. And the Bible is pro-man. Because the Bible is pro-marriage. And he has made them for one another. This leads us to the third gift that God gives to reveal his glory in marriage. He gave the man a gracious command, and he gave him a suitable helper. He also gives us all a permanent covenant. A permanent covenant. If you're looking for a takeaway in this chapter, it comes in verse 24, right after the therefore. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Notice that this is the verse that moves us immediately from history to principle. It moves us from they did to you shall do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is the formula, by the way. It is the divine equation for holy matrimony. It involves one man and one woman joined in a covenantal bond unlike any other human relationship. And this would have been shocking in the Jewish ears. Even the normal loyalties that each man and woman ought to give to their parents was swallowed up by the marriage bond, this covenant that God gives to his people forever. Perhaps more striking is that in this enduring command, the two principal actions, the third one we might think of as a sort of uh, overflow of the first two, but the two principal actions that God says makes a marriage, they also show up in passages describing the covenant bond between God and his people. Leave, he says, break off all other relationships and hold fast or cleave or cling to your wife, he says. Listen to it in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. The Lord says, you shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. The, the inference here is that there is no other name you shall hold fast to. No other God you shall have. A unique relationship forever. You shall hold fast to the Lord your God. And then he gives assurance to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. He will hold fast to you. He will not abandon you. He will not break his relationship. He is in a covenantal bond with you. There's a covenantal imperative in God's purpose for marriage. That means it's meant to be a commitment deeper than love. Deeper certainly than the love you can feel, the love that wanes and waxes as the years go by. It's supposed to be a bond stronger than personal happiness. When the Lord calls his people into marriage, he calls them to be fixed and unmovable. That's why the vows ask them if they're ready to weather the storms of sickness and health, poverty and plenty. We could add many others. 
childbirth or childlessness, all the way down to sin and forgiveness. That, I think, above all else, is how marriage becomes a window into the glory of the God who gave it, when marriage weathers sin and forgiveness. You know, of course, you're aware that this first marriage was absolutely perfect, until it wasn't. Absolutely sinless. Verse 25 says, naked and unashamed, not tainted by a single ounce of guilt or shame uh, or, or, or transgression against the other. There was no jealousy. There was no anger. There was no disappointment. The first human marriage was completely perfect. But then you know the story. And when sin entered humanity, sin also entered marriage. The first effect that sin had on the man and the woman in chapter 3 was to break their relationship, their covenantal bond between them and the God who had made them. And then almost as quickly, it breaks their bond between each one and another. So as soon as they transgress God's gracious commandments, they begin hiding, they begin blaming, they begin distrusting one another. And the story of their marriage would become the story of humanity. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Paul says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Have you ever been in a relationship that felt like that? Don't answer out loud, please. Well, if you know what became of Adam and Eve in the very next chapter, you're tempted to think that their marriage should not be a lasting principle, but more like a cautionary tale. If you know what happened to them, what happened to their marriage, you're tempted to echo the words of Jesus' disciples. Lord, if that's how it is, it sounds like it's better not to get married at all. But that's not God's conclusion in Genesis chapter 2. That's not where he goes with this. He knows full well what's going to happen with Adam and Eve in chapter 3, and yet he still ends, ends chapter 2 by telling us, therefore you shall do this. Because, of course, God knows the real end of the story. He knows not just what will become of them, but what will become of us. He knows what will become of every husband and every wife, every single and every divorcee, and every man and woman and boy and girl from creation until the day of judgment. He knows what will happen, and what will happen is a failure to keep his gracious commandments. What will happen is that men and women will love what leads to death and they will resist and reject what leads to life. What will happen is that men and women bound by sin will follow their own desires away from the God who made them for his glory just like we read in Romans chapter 1 several weeks ago. And it won't be a marriage problem. It will be a humanity problem. And God knows that what we will need when that happens, as it did, is a commitment from him to be our helper when we could in no way help ourselves. That's why marriage is so important in the scriptures, actually. 
not just because marriage is the building block of civilization, which it is, not just because the Christian family is the context in which children can grow up into disciples, which it is, not just because Christian marriage leads to satisfaction and human flourishing, which it can, Marriage is important in the Bible because it's a mirror of God's covenant commitment to the bride he has chosen for himself before he ever got this creation thing moving in the first place. Before the foundations of the world were laid, the bride that he chose, his church for himself, the Lord made an everlasting covenant to his people. And when all of our temporary earthbound marriages will have passed away, that's the one that will last, his bond with his people. This is where we're going to pick up our studies next week, with, with Paul's treatment uh, of Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5, looking particularly at the marriage between Christ and his church. But there in chapter 5, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's why God cares about marriage. Because marriage is meant to show creation how much he cares about his church. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we come with uh, many struggles and, and hang-ups and, and doubts and questions when it comes to the relationships that you've called us into, or the relationships that we long for. Father, we pray that you, by your word, would, would teach us that you have a primary commitment to all those you are gathering to yourself. Help us by that to understand your calling to to fruitfulness as you will give it, and, and most of all, to faithfulness to you. Help us to know Christ as our Savior and our groom, our keeper, our cultivator, the one who makes us fruitful for your sake and your glory. Help us, Father, to trust in him. And by trusting in him, help us to minister to one another, whether married or single. Oh, Lord, we pray that our marriages would reflect your glory in the earth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.